Welcome back to Success and More Interesting Stuff. Our guest today is share market veteran Daniel Droger. Daniel kicked off his career in financial markets way back in 1986 on the Sydney Futures Exchange. In 1990, he took the plunge and struck out on his own with very little capital. In his nine years of trading futures, on his own account, Daniel experienced only two negative months, a staggering result given the leverage and volatility associated with trading futures. In 2000, keen to celebrate the new millennium, he got off the futures market and opted for a career in the Aussie equities market, joining old schoolmate Richard Harry Holden to form Blue Lake Partners. Sitting in the bowels of the city with two desks and not much else, Daniel and Harry started to trade their own capital and it has been a one-way street ever since. Between 2000 and 2010, Blue Lake posted gains of more than 50% per annum, focusing on small companies. Expanding the team and taking on a variety of different strategies, the performance has eased ever so slightly, with the group notching up annual returns of 38% without a down year between 2010 and 2020. If you gave Daniel $100,000 to invest at the beginning of 2000, it would now be worth $21.2 million, even after you have paid your tax. Blue Lake has never taken outside money, preferring to keep the money machine for themselves. For now, anyway. I first met Daniel in 1998, when Jeff Wilson and I were selecting candidates for the book Masters of the Market. The book took over four years to produce, and when the field was finalised, Daniel failed to make the cut. He has never forgiven me. Welcome, Daniel. It's taken a while, but finally we are talking again. Thank you, Matthew. Good to be here. And I guess that explains why um, when you said that the, book's, the book is in the mail, that it's never arrived. <laughs> well, well, yeah, there are still a few copies of the book floating around all these years later, but I think we should have included you. Anyway, let's start with Blue Lake. Um, to me, it's a bit like the Loch Ness Monster, a mythical performance creature that has a lot of unconfirmed sightings, but no one is sure it's real. Is that why you called it Blue Lake, the Australian version of Loch Ness? <laughs> Very good. Uh, well, Blue Lake is a, a serene gr glacial lake that uh, lives up near the, the peak of Mount Kosciuszko. And so in some ways, a, a perfect habitat for a, a Loch Ness monster. Um, very, very peaceful and uh, part of a beautiful walk that, uh, from the top of uh, Krakenbach to Kosciuszko. Um, the man-made Blue Lake is uh, the privately funded hedge fund that we run in the city. And, um, and you're the man, you're the man making. We're, we're, the, we're, we're, we're the men making it. And um, a little bit of background on that. So we've been operating in the equity markets for 20 years. We're a team of 12 now deploying multiple strategies, trying to generate positive returns across all situations. Uh, our strategies are split between trading and investing. On the trading side, we're heavily quantitative, using models and data, generate ideas. We also leverage relationships in the market with the brokerage houses. And we see a lot of companies that either Zoom or, or come in and see us. Overall, this helps on the investing side where we aim to take longer term positions in micro cap and unlisted stocks. Um, and overall, our combined strategies provide us a lot of information. We cover a lot of ground on the short and the long term. And um, you know we try to build successful strategies and then scale them up. So trying is a bit of an underestimate. You've tried fairly well and delivered those returns. And we'll come back to Blue Lake the physical Blue Lake up in the mountains a bit later, because it does mean a fair bit to you. Just, to, just on those strategies, so in that first 10 years that we talked about in the intro, it was effectively 
you and Harry and maybe one or two others sort of came in and you were just sitting in a fairly small room. What, what made you go in 2010, I think it was around then, to a much broader strategy where other people came into the room and did different things? Because that, that takes things out of your control a little bit, doesn't it? Well, the origins of Blue Lake, I mean, I had, I had as a sole trader in the futures days, um, really sort of weighed on me towards the end before I moved to equities. And I was very determined at, at that point to build a team. But building a team, obviously, you need to find the right people. And it probably wasn't until 2010 when um, the demise of proprietary trading with the banks that we were able to pick up some extra people. Off uh, the back of the GFC and the, the, and the regulation changes. That's right, off the back of the GFC. So all those trading houses sat in the big brokers, the American firms and whatnot, seemed to be dismantled at the time. That was the opportunity? Yeah, so we competed against them, I guess, from 2000 to 2010, and we probably saw ourselves as a trading, as a prop desk. And, uh, you know, we were a group of five, and we employed a lot of the same strategies that we do now. We were probably just not as good at, at doing them. So when the opportunity came up in 2010 to 2012, and the ability to take on some, some uh, great people from various banks and so on, that's really what sort of gave us the impetus to, to build out the team. And, um, you know, we had this idea of sort of, you know, you deconstruct the market and then you, you know, and then you build these sort of silos of, of different ideas. And, you know, it always worked better to have someone who, who specialised in an area and if you gave them, you know, the right resources, then they could really have ownership of that particular area. And that's, I think, how we've played it out over, over this last 10 years. A lot has changed, though, in that period for the market in general. So we've had a lot more electronic trading. We've had the, the, you know, the, the machines wired into the exchanges and, and, and the flash boys and all that. It's all come to Australia, which must have been in competition with what you were trying to achieve in some form or another. Yeah, there was a lot of, we really had to adapt in 2012. I think that's really, where it really kicked off, mainly through the HFT, the high frequency traders, uh, and a change within the way that um, the market, uh, you, you were given access to uh, a lot of the market flows. So that was also the advent of the dark pools where trades would have been taken off market. It was also where they changed um, broker codes. And so the transparency about who was doing what and also institutions starting to do things in-house on their own algorithms and not leaving you know, their, their order book for everyone to see on market and for the brokers to, to manage and call around. So we really had to ad adapt to that as well. And it seems like you've done that quite well. But your role in that, you're also managing part of that pool like you did in the early days, even though there's more in the team. What, what, what's your strategy as an individual? So I've done, from that, I've done a lot less on the trading side. As I said before, we, we sort of did everything before, moderately well. Um, but, you know, you lose track of, of where you're going on some things and, and it, it ne never done as well as when, when you give someone the, the, the responsibility, the resources and the incentive to really um, um, to make that their strategy. Um, I have, I've kept uh, the side on, of investing, so more sort of two to five year investments on the micro cap and unlisted stocks. So um, you'll, you'll spot something, if it goes well, you'll stay in there and play the full journey out to see the company develop into something that you might have envisaged 
And that's what you specialise in. That, that's what I'm doing more, more, more of in the last 10 years. We did a little bit of that early on in the piece. Um, certainly, you know, there was the era of post the, um, the tech wreck from 2001 where um, really, you know, we sort of moved almost from T20 cricket to, you know, to test match cricket. So it was all guns blazing during that dot-com era. And then suddenly, you know, you really had to, you know, change as, as to how... Um, you know, where the opportunities were, and the opportunities at that, at that point were really some of the burnt-out stocks that had been unfairly lumped together with a lot of the dot-coms, and some examples of that were a company called Reckon. Um, we uh, got involved with that, I think, in, that would have been sometime in 2001. We, you know, we, we were doing a lot of screening around what, what you know, what was, what were the leftovers, and a lot of companies with still quite a lot of cash that they had raised, but without a business model, and Reckon had been unfairly put into that into that bucket. They had they had actually, you know, tried to play on the dot com, if I, if I remember rightly, and had come out with sort of products. But actually, once that had been scraped away, what was left was a, was a pretty good um, uh, SaaS business that had, um, uh, you know, they had the license from the parent company in America into it, and they also had considerable cash on their balance sheet. And at that point, you could buy the stock pretty much at, at cash value. So, you know, that was, that was a standout. And there weren't that many. We, you know, uh, subsequent to that, we um, also bought into Travel.com. And I think at one point, we owned 15% of that. And I was on the board. Um, and there again, that was, that was another journey um, where uh, we just felt that, that, you know, the beginning of that sort of marketplace uh, type business. Um, and some of those... We probably would have been done. We certainly would have done a lot better buying REA, you know, at that sort of scale. Uh, but we didn't do that, and a few others, and they were really the survivors. And four or five years later, uh, travel was sold to What If, uh, which then was sold to Expedia. Because it was an unusual period, wasn't it? That what effectively happened when the tech wreck happened, as far as I remember is there was no more capital for these business models, and they required a lot of capital to get to the end game if it was going to work, and that just stopped. So you had to pick on the companies that had raised enough to get through to the next side, and, and that were a couple of examples then. But just so we're clear, uh, you generated those kind of returns, especially in the early days, the 50% plus, no money from elsewhere, and, and just did it all yourself. What? I mean, we can get back to it later about the history, but just the decision, was it, was it better to just look after your own money and your own future rather than, because most fund managers, the idea is to professional investors, well, we'll take money from elsewhere, we'll get some fees in, and that generates the business and employs the people. But you, you didn't go down that path. No, we didn't. I, th I think we had, uh, one of, the, one of the, the core reasons was that we had a, a lot of, well, I had a lot of experience having traded futures on my own account and, you know, had got used to, I guess, you know, controlling your own future around that and deciding, um, uh, you know, through the, through the good and bad times, how you, how you dealt with different investments and different trades. And so it sort of just naturally led into um, when we traded equities. And I think we, well, we, we had obviously had a very, a very good year through, through that dot-com period. And so we really were quite confidently sort of bank, banking ourselves, uh, backing ourselves, and so even when the 2001 thing slowed down a bit, it was only a temporary sort of slowdown, and uh, and it really gave us time to sift through and start looking at some of these these little rough diamonds. 
And to generate those kind of returns, was it was there extra risk needed to be taken? Did you have to go and borrow money to sit next to your equity? Did you did you take a really big concentrated positions, which is sometimes how people generate great returns? Then it becomes volatile in the future years. Was there anything like that, or was there, or, or was it fairly broad based, uh, measuring the risk, and and just moving forward month in month out? So from the again from the futures days, I, I had a monthly calendar. So you would do your PL at the end of the month, and I think we kept that going while, while we we're trading equities. Uh, that obviously doesn't include when you're starting to take larger positions in some of these microcaps, and obviously. Um, that's risky in itself. That that is that's a very that's a concentrated bet, um, but we're always doing a number of things. So we always had this layered approach to trading strategies. So we had always had a number of different shorter term trading strategies, and then then we then alongside that we would sit these concentrated investments that um, you know obviously moved moved more in line with the market. But but overall the idea is that that would be harvested in in a number of years. So uh, it did make the returns more volatile on a monthly basis, but generally added to the overall returns. So that layered approach provided the liquidity. There was that trading component of the portfolio that sat beside the more concentrated small cap bets that allowed you to raise money to deploy it elsewhere at different times and give you that flexibility. Yes, we were using the trading essentially as, as a cash flow mechanism and then that fed into that when we could, we, we would try and make larger bets on more long-term ideas. Okay, and, and since 2000, you mentioned after the GFC, 2009, 10, you broaden your strategies. Um, can you just give us a bit more flavour of what, what's in the room today? There's obviously what you do. Um, there's what Richard or Harry Holden does. What about some of the others? What, what are the opportunities? Absolutely. So, like so as I mentioned before, we, we run a, sort of a, a, a split room of trading and there's a team of seven or eight strategies that we're running there and Harry and myself uh, are doing more of the longer term ideas as, as it's worked Harry um, uh, has built up an expertise within the resource sector and the ag sector so it's quite complementary the two of us. Um, on the trading side we really run a sort of a, a, um, a hub and spoke model so a lot of data sits in the middle of the room and then you have these various strategies that come out from from what from that and they are you know we run arbitrage facilitation we run a lot of models on momentum and you know we yeah and so that, so so they are the layers that I said that we so that we build out so you know we're constantly engaged in finding new ideas back testing them discarding them or scaling them so that's really how the room looks at looks at everything and so the ability for blue lake to grow is in what you're saying, once you back test it, the strategy, whether it works in this environment, and then yes, tick, we can scale this. And that's where Blue Lake can grow. Is that a fair assessment? Yeah, so Blue Lake can grow um, across a number of ways. Obviously the existing strategies, so that's you know dependent on the liquidity of the market and, and what different strategies can scale at, you know, have different points where they tap out. Certainly on the, on the uh, micro cap side, you know, there's, there's a lot of room to do more there, just depending on, again, on capital. We're looking further beyond into the unlisted sector. We've done a lot, a lot more of that in the last four or five years. And then going to the um, extreme trading side, we, we've looked at the high frequency side of things. We're actually in, engaged to um, 
four or five years ago uh, to get in to do a JV with a Hong Kong HFT. And we got very, very close. It, it, it didn't um, materialise, but we would look at that again as well. We just think that's um, very beneficial to pretty much all our strategies just to improve execution, especially as things do become more algo-focused and more, more, uh, more mechanical in terms of execution. So there are sort of a number of ways, but in general, I mean, I, you know, I wouldn't say that we, we, we're not an ambitious company, but we, you know, we've sort of found our way here incrementally. And, and, and the changes that do happen, you mentioned a little bit before, a bit of unlisted has come into what you do, and that is, I gather, part of how the market's changing. Unlisted companies or companies going to listing have got a step process now prior to listing that probably didn't exist going back 10 years. So that's another change. So if you want to get into the into the process, then you've got to get in a bit earlier than rather than when it just appears on the boards on any given day. Is that is that kind of what's happened there? Yeah, so the, so the, um, the pipeline of unlisted companies has significantly grown over the last number of years and the the process for them for them listing um, and the support they're given through the broken community and the banking community is now seen as a significant part of their businesses um, as obviously the, the brokerage part of business starts um, becoming less significant for them than they've had to make up elsewhere. And this is the, for the medium-sized brokers and, and even the larger ones now, uh, they've moved into this, okay, well, let's, uh, let's manage and uh, let's nurture some of these smaller companies and bring them to market. And also the market itself right now is, is more open, certainly in the technology side, uh, high-risk profile, to take on companies that are high growth, probably, which, which really would not have made the... Uh, the exchange five years ago. Okay, Let, let's go back in time, back into the um, 80s when it all started to see how the um, money machine that's blue like these days was originally formed. So you, you started in the futures market, which you've alluded to. You leave school. Why, why a job in the futures market? Was that planned? Were you sitting there in, in year 11, year 12 saying, well, I've just got to get to the SFE floor and start trading? They've been waiting for me. <laughs> Uh, so I st- started with um, the, fu- the f- my first job in the futures, but um, just winding back a little bit. So I w- went to University of New South Wales, uh, did a commerce degree. I had been working at the uh, AF- the Financial Review for the- my last year at uni. Uh, I kept that going at the end of uni for another, s- another six months. And then my idea at that point was just to make enough money to um, to travel, which so I, so I did a-, a-, a pretty heavy tour of duty of uh, India and Turkey, and then uh, came back and then, for a, and then suddenly um, had to immerse myself in actually getting a real job. So that would have been probably September 86, um, where I had to take, had to take that on. Um, and you know, I, there were a lot of foreign banks at the time, so interviewing, I mean, things were, they were heating up a lot. Deregulation of the banking system had happened. Yes. And, and there were a lot of players in the Aussie market. A lot of players in the Aussie market, and they needed uh, a lot of seats to be filled. And um, so it was easy uh, getting interviews with a number of the banks, and they were all, you know, the BNPs, Bank of America, I remember. Um, and they looked look very interesting. Um, and then I had a friend of my brother's had um, a contact at this investment group called Bisley, and they had a membership of the futures floor. 
and you know I took an interview with them and that was just something completely different you know it was sort of the equivalent of you know the foreign banks you know sort of going out going out for an evening or something like that and this beautiful French restaurant you know the menu stiff waiters lovely you know EPF you know floating through the uh, through the speakers and then next door is a rowdy bar and there's someone being thrown through a window and and um, <laughs> you know it just looks rough and ready and so much fun and I thought well I've got to do that so you know I went I went, went downstairs to that bar got that job and literally started sort of you know within a week and um, and also there was a huge amount of energy I mean I wasn't really aware of the markets when I was in India and uh, wasn't really aware of the markets when I was at university um, but had Picked up enough, you know, at, at, at the Fin Review, Fin Review about that um, there was just a lot, lot more going on, and obviously had a few friends who were also getting jobs at the time, and a lot of them were going into investment banking. Um, so and that, that was a heady time, as we said, market de- bank deregulation, markets were flying, and then you walk into the '87 crash. What about a year later after you? So, so what happened? What was the fallout from that? Because there was a lot of fallout. So the Bisley Investments were, was, were the, um, I guess the, um, uh, was an investment company uh, uh, run, uh, owned by a number of um, uh, Pottsworth Trumbull, Spedley Group, and all of that had put some of their assets into, into this company. So they had their membership to the Futures Exchange, they had an options trading book, a very, very successful one that, had, that I think had really shot the lights out for a number of years. Um, and a few other property, le- presumably anything that was leveraged was, went into Bisley. Um, so the bell rang in 1987 um, for the opening of uh, Black Monday and um, Bisley effectively went broke on the bell. So the, um, the options book had forgotten to hedge all of their positions. I mean, they, had made, you know, they made money every day um, bar a crash. So um, it was just unfortunate. And so the business closes down? Uh, the bit, it was a bit of a sort of zombie situation. So the I think the, the futures seat was still trading. You know they were basically tra- uh, you know they were in administration essentially. Uh, and then from there I moved to Macintosh again. So there were still jobs around because it was a clear out of the financial system that had built up excesses over a number of years. So. There was the futures market was still quite active, and the options market uh, really was coming into its own then. And Macintosh Securities, who I got the job through. Uh, they had a very, very sophisticated um, software package for options, and I came and I joined them basically to sell over-the-counter and exchange-traded options using a software package and talking to various uh, semi-government and 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 corporates. And were you a good salesman? Not a great salesman, but I I knew, I knew the options quite well, um, and it was very, very, and it was interesting work. Um, so that was probably sort of made me a better salesman. But come 1990, a couple of years later, you decide, well, I'm going to do it myself. But you go, go back to the futures market. How, how did that unfold and, and why did you make the decision? So big, wor- big risk. Yeah, so I was working on, on, so on, on, the, on the institutional desk at Macintosh, which was futures and options. Um, and I'd just come to the realisation that um, you know, I'd probably you know, done, done my dash all of four years of working, but if you throw in a crash, it feels like feel like I've been working a lifetime. Um, and look, I really took the view that uh, broking wasn't for me, and that I was probably more comfortable taking incoming calls as opposed to making outgoing calls. <laughs> and so, you know, a, a bit of a change. And I thought, well, you know, I'll, I'll 
I'll see if I can trade on my own account. And I hadn't, to that date, really done a lot of that. Uh, but obviously, I'd advised a lot on the market, but I hadn't really successfully run a trading um, account that to sort of back me up to think that okay, this is a sure thing. So just for clarification, one, you're broken to a client's, and then when you change, you use your own money, and you become a client of Merrill Lynch, and you're using that money to try and generate a return so you can virtually survive. So how, how much money did you have in those days? And yeah, so I had a so I had a conversation with my boss. As I said, I was sitting on the on the desk there, and I thought, well, the best situation would be if I, if I could just keep my environment the way it is. Um, and so I had the conversation with my boss and said, well, how about you know I've got a great new client for you, um, but it also involves me resigning. Um, and so on you know on the Friday I was an employee. On the Monday I sat in exactly the same seat next to exactly the same guys and started. Trading, I, you know, I promised a certain amount of brokerage um, and obviously paid for all my screens and so on. Um, and I had 20, the week, the week before I started, I had $28,000. Mm-hmm. So it's not, not a lot of money to start, a, you know, a, a career as investing or trading, but within the leverage of futures, that, that, that can get you going. Or, or you know, it's, it's or, You'll soon find out. You'll get a result one way or the other. Um, and I remember at the time, I, I don't know, it was a sign of false confidence. I was trying to sort of d- dare myself to be overly confident. But there was a uh, there was a Russian exhibition of of a Glasnost um, uh, exhibition travelling around s- through Melbourne up to Sydney. And I'd really had put off. I really wanted a painting that was there, and I thought that no, was highly irresponsible for me to do that. And then I think over that, and I know over that weekend, I just thought, okay, Daniel. You know, two thousand dollars. Now you've only got twenty-six thousand dollars. But I thought I'm going to buy that painting, almost as a dare to myself to say, okay, yeah, this is really backing yourself now. Dialing up the pressure. And don't go to any other galleries, by the way, that weekend. <laughs> okay, so you kick off, and the story unfolds. You have, as we said in the introduction, you have not. I think it's nine years or thereabouts doing your own book, and in that period, there's eighty-four months, give or take two down months in the whole period. So how do you achieve that given the volatility of futures markets, let alone equity markets? Futures are obviously got that ability for leverage. Most people, if they break even, would be happy six months up, six months down any given year. Two months out of 80 odd. Explain. Well, first you say one of those months was an absolute doozy. Um, so that was <laughs> that wiped uh, out about three. Yeah, years that's, that's right. That's right. That wiped out quite a lot. That was uh, that was quite early on the piece actually. That was the the Soros intervention in the uh, in the UK uh, pound. Mm-hmm. And um, I remember I was at the um, and I had positions uh, for yields to to drop. Um, and I remember being at the Sydney Film Festival, which is, you know, three films, whatever, and being making calls in between because you always sort of try and stay in touch. And there was, you know, there's a little sort of, you know, there's a little bit of volatility creeping in the market early in the evening. And then, um, and then went back in, saw another film, came back out, rang up, and there was just absolute mayhem. So I scooted back to the office. And um, thankfully, there was, a, it was a, I think it was a two-and-a-half-hour movie because if it had been an hour-and-a-half and I'd got out, I would have had to stop myself out and I probably would have lost everything I'd, I'd made, you know, for the previous year. So uh, by that time, there was a bit of recovery, but it was, that was, that was a, as I said, that was, that was a particularly scary moment. Um, but as far as generally a consistent performance, I 
really started with the, uh, the idea that, um, that yields were going to be dropping over that decade. I mean, yields were very high in the early 90s. Bond yields. Bond yields. And, uh, and so I set myself up for a number of positions or um, signals, patterns, where essentially I was buying three-year or 10-year bonds. And also I was, I was dealing a little bit in the, um, in the SPY and some of the US um, uh, fixed interest markets as well. But essentially I, I went with the same trade. So it was yields to go down over the course of however long, and I just played that out. A decade-long trade. <laughs> Pretty much a decade. I mean, there's obviously a lot, lot of things in between, um, but that was really the sort of notion. So the, the idea was to be, um, you know, to be very tight on, um, on my trading stops and just be really disciplined. And that, 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 that sort of, as it, as it turned out, you know, six, seven years, you know, at, towards that 98, 99, when I was looking at the equity markets, it's quite grinding work in the end when you're on call all the time and, uh, you know, it's a 24-hour business. By yourself. And by yourself as well, yep. Tough, tough situation. Well, I'm glad there is an upside to very long movies. Now, there was a period where, or, or there was a, a small period where you did end up managing some money for someone else, but it didn't last long. Did, was there a reason why you took that money and how did that come about? And, and why did you give it back? Yeah, so in, after one year, I, I, when I originally sat down to, with my accountant to, um, uh, to organise all the paperwork around, you know, I'm, I'm a sole trader, and he said, okay, well, you know, you know, tell me, give me the name of the company, is it ABC Trading or something like that? I said, no, it's Luigi's Tin Top Trading Company. <laughs> so even from that very early stage, I wasn't thinking that it was a name that I was going to be going out marketing. It didn't necessarily look that great on a sales, on a sales presentation. But, in, but at the end of uh, 90, 1992, um, I did a trip to New York and it was all set up. So there was a, a, a trader uh, that, I, that I had met when I was working at Bisley and he'd put through a number of orders and I was his broker for a little while or, or one of, you know, a dog's body broker for a little while. We got to know each other and his name was Stephen Hansen and he was running an asset management business called Wessex. Um, funds management and they traded commodities. So he was, he was in New York. He was in Sydney, and he, uh, you know, he'd be buying grain or selling timber, lumber, or or T bonds, uh, and he built up his business. So by 1990, he was one of seen as one of the best um, uh, certified traders or fund managers. Uh, all the, all his funds came out of the states, um, and. For two or three years, he was in Barron's top ten of performance globally. So globally, so he was he was a significant player, and, and he encouraged me when I started out my own, um, and then encouraged me and said, "You know, Daniel, why don't you go to New York? It's all working. This is the way to do it. You scale up, and um, you know these guys are really professional, and and um, and this is the way you build a career." And I thought, well, fantastic. I mean, the idea of going to New York, and a very very rare opportunity through Stephen to meet all these incredible firms. Some of them I hadn't heard of, uh, one or two I had. So he wrote introductory letters to so all he those people, a, so he came knocking. He wrote a letter to all of them from um, More Capital, Tudor Jones, Paul Tudor Jones, Kenmar, Commodity Corp, a whole lot of, of the big players over there. And of course, with, with Stephen's recommendation, they all, they all um, said, yeah, come on in, all very friendly, and offered various opportunities either when I was over there or, or when I came back. Um, 
I particularly remember one one instance. The um, Prubash was one of the groups, and they they were they were very large uh, providers of uh, funding to hedge funds and commodity traders. And um, the guy, after we ha- had a coffee, he said, "Look, you know, I'm going to, sh- you know, would you like to see the room where probably the most amount of volume gets traded in New York State?" And, uh, and I thought, well, this is going to be another great New York story. Of course, you know, I was expecting to see, you know, a dealing room of 250 people yelling down the phone, um, you know, all sorts of things happening. And um, so he led me into, in, into, you know, went upstairs, led me into a room. And in actual fact, there was six women sitting around a table, very demurely, just picking up phone calls, taking what were very large orders, and then and conveying them to the traders down the floor. So they were, they were basically pl- taking orders from the clients, then take it, then then um, uh, then putting those orders to the floor down in Chicago, um, and all very quietly, just very, very civilised. And, um, you know, but the numbers would be, I, mean, I could hear on the phone, you know, it was 10,000 this or something like that, right? And, and uh, I, was, I was firstly surprised, and secondly, I just thought, well, that's just fantastic. So the powerhouse wasn't quite what you thought. <laughs> that's where the action was. Um, so I came back to came back to Sydney. I decided to take some money from uh, Paul Tudor Jones, who famous name in the market very around famous. the world, let alone America. Yes, and I think I just thought, well, that, you know, I just had to um, <laughs> because uh, any association. I, look, I came back with a very very different view of the whole industry. Uh, I think New York really opened my eyes that it was significant. Um, uh, you know, a lot larger than I thought, and you know, and having met all these people and just the way um, you know they carry themselves and and the huge sums and the quality of, of of the people running these programs, I was very impressed. So it injected a little bit of ambition into you. I think I think it, yeah, that's right. It, it came back thinking, okay, well, you know, this this is something you can get you can get larger in if you want to, um, and really sort of made me. See the see the you know the big U.S. Um, you know Chicago pits and the, and the New York funding and and just seeing a lot a lot more optionality in terms of what what could be done. Uh, so I came back with that very very strong feeling. Came back with the Tudor money, and you know I I would love to have worked in New York, but I thought well I'll, I'll bring a bit of New York back with me. So um, you know I'd spend a bit of time in Soho and and the meatpacking district. And uh, so convinced um, my girlfriend that we should move into a warehouse in Surrey Hills and let's pretend we're in New York. Um, and so there was quite a few dramatic changes came out of that. But it was a great trip. Anyway, I, I, I uh, managed, the, managed the Tudor money for a year and then thought, okay, well, this is, um, you know, it all, all went very well. I think they would have been happy with it. And then I just thought, okay, well, I, you know, I'm just going to really put the foot down myself. So you gave Paul Tudor Jones more money back than he gave you? Yes. Yeah. So that was a good outcome. Yeah. Yes. So that so that was great, and then and then j- just just went went on with it. But uh, and I'm very happy that I had that experience. So New York in Sydney, you lasted there for a long time doing it yourself. As we said, it's a, a lonely experience, a bit of a lone wolf carrying all the stress, all the rewards. But then come the end of the the decade, uh, you, you up stumps and pack up the tent and decide I'm going into equities. Your good friend, schoolmate Harry Holden, had started, which which you played a role in, and then a year or so later you joined. What? Why change that when the formula's working? When 
Did you well, think, did you think your bond trade was coming to an end and, <laughs> and, the, and the mystery will be revealed or, or, did you, or did you need a change in your life? Oh, look, I think uh, I definitely need a change in my life. I can feel the, um, just generally it sort of grinding away and I think, um, I mean, I'm s- someone who really needs to be um, invested, interested in something to get the most out of myself. Um, otherwise, you know, it's, it starts to fade and I think the futures trade was, as I say, it was very, very efficient markets. Um, and I could, and there was there was a lot going on elsewhere. So there, there was actually, the, so it wasn't just the, the grind of the futures. There was actually enormous amount of opportunity, sort of looking on the other side. Um, at the time, you know, my own circum- personal circumstances had changed. Um, had two young children. That time had a lot of other outside interests, and um, and some of the structural parts of the of the the. Uh, the ASX, the stock market, were also changing. They had uh, cut their stamp duty fees in half, and then again they were they were going to get rid of that by two thousand one, I think. Um, so that really changed the ability for, for a trader to look at to look at stocks. Uh, and then there was also the market itself. So uh, I think the the sort of light bulb moment was the the AMP um, uh, when that listed in nineteen ninety eight, and it came in at. Um, I think it listed at thirty-four or thirty-six dollars, and I'd actually shorted that on that on that open, and then by the end of the day, I'd trade down twenty-two. And I and this is while you were a futures trader. You were this is why. That's right. You so couldn't help. You went over the. I fence. did. I was. I was working through an office at Bell's through through that decade, and I had I'd had some. You know, I was working with other people, but I was essentially just just me on my strategy, and the other guys were doing tra- trading futures themselves as well. So we had a shared office, um, but we were all individually doing our own thing. Um, so there was, as Bells was an, an equity broker as well, so um, we were, I was starting to do a little bit more of that and you know, I was just sort of flabbergasted. So, you know, the, you know, the, how, how does this possibly happen in the futures market? There's you know, half cent sort of spread with you know, $200 million on both sides of the trade. You know, the this, this sort of inefficiencies, that's right, the inefficiencies didn't exist. So I started looking a little bit more, and that and that was, and then that led to a year later, the conversation with Harry, um, and he had been at Citigroup, and he with similar backgrounds in some ways. He was trading swaps and futures, and I think it was a good time for him as well. I think he was getting um, thought it was a good time to. You both had to grow up a bit, a bit yes. of responsibility. Yeah, that's right. Well, you could have kept that AMP trade on like your bond trade for for not only ten years, for twenty years. Yes, that short. So. You eventually formed Blue Lake. It was a heady market. It was it was getting right towards the top end of the tech boom, and that that was that was alluring, no doubt, just like in the old eighties days when you entered the futures markets. But it didn't last long. So it it unfolded. How do you, how do you how do you make um, hay while the sun doesn't shine? Because it fell over in two thousand two thousand one. It, it was a tough market for quite a while. One of the uh, fortuitous things that we, we uh, when we got our off- first our officers in the trading equities, we moved to, we had a relationship with Burdett, Buckridge & Young. So we set up there and they were a, a, a mid-tier broker, firmly right in the centre of all the action of for all the dot-com stocks. And as I sort of mentioned before, there was really T T20, you know, it was just all guns blazing. Um, and so we really started... Uh, you know, it was a running start. We, we, we came from a trading background, so we were very comfortable 
um, just getting into it and you know. How, how many months did you get before it all fell up, well the market fell over? <laughs> well it looked like I've got a habit of, of coming in at five minutes to midnight on all these markets. Um, yeah look it, look it looked pretty frothy from almost the, the moment we got there and we just kept going. I don't think we necessarily put a, a, a you know a, a, a time stamp on it and I think I thought we were just okay we, you know we, we can still control what we're doing and so on and we were trading this wasn't investing at that point you know so we didn't have sort of really really large positions and also the, the, the pretty liquid markets at that point I mean it changed very very quickly and there was a bit of a mess that we did have to clean up <laughs> come, like most people. Come, yeah that's right come the April 2000 yeah. mm. so but th- then investing does come in the market rolls over uh, the tech booms over as we knew it and it led us into a different era, and there was a period of adjustment. You mentioned Reckon. Is that period in 2000 and 2001 into two, when the US was in a bear market, where you taught yourself how to actually invest the way you want to invest in equities? Is that a pivotal period? So that was a very, very big change for me, because that really was about um, you know patience, about understanding the company. In the Reckon example, we went and saw the company Many many times, and I, and um, one of the interesting one of the uh, interesting things that I remember was that the that you know they had been quite popular when the dot com was happening, and and I remember the MD saying you know no one's come to see us for three or four months, <laughs> you know like everyone just went to their bar and stuff, and so that was um, you know so we 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 managed to pick up you know a number and say like travel dot com and so on, but. That was pretty slow. That was, that was a pretty slow year for us and a pretty underperforming year. But, but then we came out of that and we, we marched towards out of 2002 right through to 2007. So that period then, you had a number of stocks. You talked about travel.com, Reckon. You played them out and the returns were terrific off the back of that? Those were, or, or did you have to evolve into something else? Did it become more of a, a uh, resource-based house for a while? Did, you know, did you, were you pliable with the market? We, we definitely are adaptable with the market, and, and as I mentioned before, um, you know Harry really p- picked up the mantle as far as the resources companies went, and that was also a very good period for us for two thousand four to two thousand seven. So you know the commodity, all the commodity prices, the rise of China, um, there was you know there was there was a lot going on there. And so you were forming, what you were looking at what kind of things when you looked at a company. You mentioned a bit before, balance sheet came in. Um, the type of business it was. Just run us through your process that you developed and, and why you got comfortable picking individual stocks. Well, it was pretty simple for, the, for that, that early stage because it really was, there was only a few what I would have seen as companies that I, I understood um, that looked like they would function, uh, in, you know, that there was actually longevity to, to the business model. So it's probably an unfair example thinking about that time because there really were only a few when we were looking at the sort of micro-cap, micro-cap tech stocks. Yeah, so they're form- formulating that view as yeah. your groundwork, p- applying that going forward. So maybe, maybe some examples just to get an idea of how you... Yes. Because everyone works out a system in their own head, how they go about things and what suits them and what they're comfortable with. Yeah, so maybe a few examples of, of the sort of stocks I'm, I'm looking at the moment, which is on the investing side. So we've been involved with a company called High Pages, which is a digital marketplace for tradies. It has just recently listed on the ASX. We uh, invested in them five years ago as an unlisted company. At that point, I think they had about 20 million of revenue. They're now looking at 53, I think 53 or $55 million of revenue for 
21 year. Essentially, they have 40,000 tradies on their books. They provide um, work to from their uh, from the customer base. Uh, so they run sort of a, you know a, a classic marketplace flywheel where they try and build up the number of tradies, which then try and build up the number of um, customers, and then one sort of works off the other. As, as more customers turn up, then the traders get more familiar with the site and there's more work for them. On average, there's probably, uh, I think it's around $1,200 the traders pay. It's a subscription model uh, where they get um, introduction to, to work. So some of the characteristics there was a new way of doing business, something that had performed in other markets, a kind of a, a marketplace or a platform, but had longevity, and, and then you're getting it at the right price. So are they, are they some of the key attributes? Yeah, so we look at look them at? as being the the market leader in this segment that they were building up themselves. There are a number. Of, there, there there are a number of others um, who have tried in this space, who are still in this space, and we've seen over the course of the last few years. We did follow our investment again about two years ago because uh, we saw that they were growing at the expense of some of their competitors. So they were a clear number one. And at, at, at this point, they're, they're the leader in that segment. They're winning that battle by the sounds of it. The, the, yeah, the, sorry, they won the competitive battle at this point. The, uh, the interesting and the upside for this stock is the next level, which you've seen in, in a number of other marketplace type uh, businesses, where suddenly they can obviously incrementally grow their base number of tradies. They can add a number of verticals to it. But really, it's about you know, share of wallet with this group of providing real value to the tradies. So it may, that may come in the, in the form of further services, so maybe software, administration, management systems, may come in. Uh, they can own that market. Yes, yes. So interesting thing you said there was that you added to your position. So is that something you're happy to do? If, if it's unfolding like you would think, to add along the way as the story plays out? We, yes, we do. We, we have, um, and we've looked at, and in, let's say another case, we, an, another business that we looked at, which is based in the US, it's a group called Good Catch Foods. So it's a, a US based, a plant based, um, seafood business. So over the last few years, you may have heard of Beyond Meats. So this sort of alternate protein market is, you know, in its infancy, but there's a long way for it to go. There's over 3 billion people in the world where seafood is, is their uh, major source of protein. They're a young company. This year they'll do two million of sales, but they're moving very, very quickly. Uh, they have some of the same VC and some of the same support systems from the Beyond Meats group, and they've just picked up uh, distribution with uh, Tesco early in the, in the UK, and then um, and Loblaws, which is in the in Canada, which is about 640 stores. So they're building factories, and you know they we, we will look hopefully look to to add to that position. As I say, it's very very early stage. As the story unfolds in yes, the right direction. That's right. So we would think this position is something we'll, we'll see uh, unfold over many many years. Okay, all right. So let's let's go back in time again. So we go through 2008, which which is probably the hardest market all of us have been through. 2000 and, and, and you know, most people lost over 50% of their money. Then 2009, March began a new bull market. Can you run us through just as a group how you manage your risk and how you went about that period? Because it really uh, you know, hurt some people and they found it very difficult to get over. But you guys seem to have spring loaded out of that in that period. 
Can you give us a bit of a run through how it felt in the days of 08 and how you went about it and then how you approached it going forward? We were still very agile in those days. We'd sold out of, uh, say, we'd, some of those positions I'd mentioned, the Reckons, the Travel.coms, uh, that takeover was 2007. So a lot of our um, uh, core microcaps, we, we didn't we did not have a large portfolio at that time of uh, illiquid stocks. And the market had become very, very volatile. So we saw it through 2007, 2008, two or three significant peaks and then 10, 15% retracements and then massive runs back on the upside before the final the final collapse in... Does that in, volatility worry you as someone who's a market watcher? That, at that time, that it provided opportunities, uh, but in general, volatility was sort of, you know, there was... <laughs> they sounded the alarm three times, you know, to, to see it like that. I mean, um, it, you know, even what we saw earlier this year or a number of other pullbacks, I don't, you know, the aggressive nature of that market was... Um, was something we really hadn't experienced before. Okay, uh, so we, then we, then yeah, we fall so we, into 08. Yeah, so in 08, you know, we had a reasonably sort of decent sort of pantry of stocks and, uh, you know, in all different sectors. I think oil was running hot at that stage and a whole lot of things. And we were doing our best to pretty much to get out of as much as we could going into that into that period. Um, and, but, you know, come the that uh, July, August, September 08, um, you know, like every other time, we, we were hurt quite badly. Um, we really retreated as much as we could. We we took a we you know we took a stand at a few occasions, which didn't work. And then so for the rest of that December and uh, January and February of '09, while we were nursing obviously some positions, we were probably probably the quietest I think we've ever been. I know we were we were doing a sort of um, a in-house project of documenting various crashes going back from 1929. So we're trying to keep ourselves sort of business with almost an academic pursuit. And then came, you know, so we were looking for some sort of science that things had bottom. And, and obviously things had got to such an extreme point that you suddenly realise that there's enormous opportunity. You know, it's one of the case where, you know, you look for a 10% pullback and then you get there and you think, oh, that's great. But then when it goes to 20, you, you know, you're rattled and you don't want to touch anything. If it gets to that sort of point, which we saw this year and we saw at that point, you realise there's immense opportunities. You know, it's a once-in-a-generation type opportunity, but you just don't know when. Well, the problem in 08 was there was a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity in March, yeah. once-in-a-lifetime opportunity in August, September, November, and then it wasn't until the March. It gave you a number, there was a number of head fakes, to use the American terminology. Yes, yeah. That, that, so that defeated us all. And maybe that summer that we experienced was an academic experience because we'd all thrown our hands up. <laughs> so the, when uh, Warren Buffett threw his hands up and uh, that really saw the bottom of the market in March. I mean, he'd been a big supporter of some of the banks and he'd, whatever I thought he'd got in at obviously great terms. But um, when uh, the market went below his thing and he actually came out publicly and said, you know, I don't, I don't know what's going on. That was sort of the last exhaustion of the market. And then from that point, that must have been early March. So you got on the phone to Harry and said, Warren's just given up, it's time to buy. <laughs> Not exactly at that point. That was, that's right, the Warren moment. <laughs> Harry, we've been warned. You know, so the market went down. And then from that point, any bad news that was put out there was, was treated, was bought. So that, that to us was really the signal. So the Warren moment was obviously the, the, the bottom. 
but then it was interpretation of what was what was good and bad news. So that really changed that. So then we you know we we were had pretty much we were in a reasonably good space because uh, we weren't still battling. So you preserved enough capital in that downdraft. You didn't necessarily say, well, let's go short, let's make a truckload of money out of the 08 crisis. You held it tight and got ready for the next leg, which hopefully would be an up, you know, a rebound. Yeah, so going to that, we, we weren't down too badly. We'd, I'd say we'd, we'd had some good moves in the previous year, and while we'd given back a lot of it uh, in from July to September, um, we were in quite a good, quite a good spot. And, and since then... You, You've rebounded and you haven't had a down year in the 10 years, which is quite nice. It's not as, I don't think it's as good as your two months and 80 odd down, <laughs> but that, that's great. You haven't experienced any exceptional losses in that period? Is there been, because we have had some volatility, including this year. So how, how do you go about that? And do you remember any bad times or has it all been fairly smooth sailing? No, there's, there's always there's always moments that they've been positive years, but you know within looking within those years, the end of 2018 was was quite difficult for us. So there was a quarter where the market just kept going down, day in day out, and then obviously you know the recovery started. Then there was this year, and this year obviously you know the, almost almost a better situation just in terms of markets. That it all happens very very quickly. So we get to February 21, markets have peaked. We didn't know that at the time. The next 30. I think it was 32 days. The markets, the Aussie markets down 37%, the small caps, which you operate in, 41, 42%. How did you handle that? Did you quickly remove your risk from the table at the top end of that sell-off? Because it happened in over you know, four and a half weeks. It wasn't much time to, to adjust. So the investment side of the room, which is was me, that that you know, that had all sorts of blisters and and scars all over it and so on, and that was a, you know, that looked absolutely uh, you know that, that was a, that was a complete train wreck for that for those, you know. The, the, so the small caps were down forty two percent. The on the trading side of the room, everyone had really pulled back on some of the strategies. So some of the risk arb um, and number of the momentum strategies and so on had had also you know had gone quiet for just you know the, the, those sort of two weeks and then kicked in. So a, a lot, quite a lot of liquidity hit the market at that bottom. And the moves was really quite significant. So a lot of the uh, our trading strategies then suddenly really found their their place there and did did very well. So that really counterbalanced what what was happening in my book. So by the end of March we we were break even, which was a great position to be in. So you could feel the liquidity in the market come back, and that was your sign rather than reading trying to read the going back and doing the academic pursuits about market crashes like you'd done before. Yes, yeah. So, yeah, and there wasn't much I could do at the moment. You know, we, we obviously look at, at some of the, the market caps and you start examining them, certainly with the idea of what was happening there with the pandemic. You, you're seeing really the glass half empty and saying, well, you know, there's, there's not going to be any capital available for some of these companies that, that previously, you know, we really had, 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 were very excited about. And so you, you're sort of anxiously, certainly at that time, we were actually thinking, well, you know, we're in real trouble here for a lot of these companies. So as, as it materialised, the, the, you know, the markets came back, the capital markets came back even better. It was quite remarkable. And here we are in December of the year, some nine months on. How's the year panned out? Oh, we've, been in, we've been in a good position. So, uh, you know, uh, as I mentioned, liquidity, which has been a real phenomenon of, the, of 2020. Uh, so you've had the, the, the Robin Hood uh, retail swarm that's hit the markets. And so that has really 
<coughs> been good for, as I say, the scaling of some of our of some of our strategies. So we've probably been able to do things that we probably really couldn't couldn't do it's with the sort of size. Uh, the opportunities around some of the arbitrage has been very good. Just across the board, I think everyone would find that, that most things are working. So and returns for the year. Uh, returns for the year have probably been a bit more more like double sort of what we would do normally. Right. So I'm thinking 60, 70%. Something like that. So you, you, you're hoping we'd have a COVID crisis most years on that basis, <laughs> unfortunately. So it's panned out very well for you. It's, yeah, for, yeah, the business has done well. Terrific. All right, let's, you've, you've ground away over 34 years. I think that's the working career if you want to do the numbers. You're looking perplexed. <laughs> Who would have thought you could work for 34 years and still like it? So let's let's go back. Why why the persistence? Why the grind to build a business, even though it's a bit unorthodox compared to other um, financial houses where outside money's helped grow it. You've done it in house. So you grew up in a fairly large family. Spent a lot of the time down in the snowfields, and that's we'll get back to the the Blue Lake name off the back of that. Uh, big family, five boys, sister, your dad managing ski fields or parts of ski fields. That must have been a competitive environment. You got sport in the backyard, which just happens to be the, the mountain, <laughs> especially five boys going at it. Competitive, uh, good for good conditioning to go forward in terms of markets because markets are competitive. So we were certainly competitive to a point. I think um, we're sort of a, a bit of a balance between just, you know, naturally, as you said, five, five boys and a girl and, and um, tend to want to sort of beat each other at, at everything, especially when you're intensely looking at each other all the time. So the years we were at, at Perisher, there weren't a lot of families down there, so we were really there over summer. So we were very dependent on each other to do things. And I think that maybe sort of, you know, just lightened a little bit. The competitive spirit, we actually realised that if you, you know, want to set up a game of cricket and you, and you want my sister, younger sister, to, you know, be in the slips or something like that, right, you sort of have to give everyone, has to have a bit of a bat and bowl. I mean, saying that, Monopoly, I can't, still can't play the game, you know, since those days. That was an absolute blood sport. There was a, you know, we ran a Droga Olympics, Summer Olympics down there. <laughs> so uh, the sort of events were everything, you know, from grass skiing, table tennis, backgammon. You know, I think we had a, 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 a you know, a portrait painting competition. And just a few years ago, we did it again at my brother's place in America. And we, each family had to do a musical. So it was, you know what I mean? It's, it's competitive in very unusual ways. You know, the holy grail was certainly skiing. That's where we, even today, you know, the sledging is probably most extreme around the skiing. And everyone claims to be the best. Every, naturally, everyone claims to be the best. And you know, me personally, you know, the, the, the posters in my room were of, of Tommy Radonikus, who's a rugby league player, and a guy called Franz Klummer, who was an Austrian skier, who was an absolute beast in, in the mountains during the, in, during the 70s. He won one of the gold medals, and he was an absolute hero. And so we all, you know, we were all deeply in the scheme. But strangely enough, my mother was very anti-racing. And so, you know, she actively discouraged or actively didn't have us doing any racing. She really thought your kids are going to be fine skiing, but there's a lot more in the world to do rather than racing. So she did, really didn't pursue that at all. So I had a, a brief moment in the, in the Mighty Mites at uh, Threadbow, but, uh, but that was more a, a child-minding than anything else. But, but it produced three, three boys in the financial markets, uh, one 
took the artistic route, which is obvious in some of the things you did, sculptor. And then, of course, uh, youngest brother, David, in a marketing company, Droga 5. So it, it, the environment obviously encouraged a fair bit of ambition and, and competition and strive to do well. It, was, it wasn't a bad environment for that. No, it was, look, it, it was a long childhood. So, <laughs> so I'm, I'm thinking that's a good thing. I mean, I remember the... Um, you know, when I was at, uh, you know, we moved to Threadbow when I was three and a half. My father was hotel management. He took over management of the Alpine Hotel there. He, my mum, four of us kids were thrown in a little apartment in, in the Alpine Hotel. So we grew up there. And uh, Threadbow, Threadbow was just an, uh, an absolutely magical place. A winter wonderland. Well, it was a winter wonderland. That's right. Yeah, it's a... Um, you know, a little snow dome, you know, where you shake and, you know, it's just this yep. per- per- perfect little environment to grow up. And, uh, you know, I was just going to school in Jindabyne Public and the whole village was, they're all European. My mother was Danish. My father had, had, was a Polish background. So we fit in very well. It's open doors. It's absolutely perfect. So, look, we, I got yanked out way too early to go to boarding school. Well, when was that, year five? That year was four? year four. So I was eight or nine and uh, my, my father told the story of, how for my oldest brother, because the nearest high school was Cooma High, was over an hour and a half away, so that wasn't really logistically possible, so we had to organise a boarding thing. And my father said, well, we're going to send him to uh, boarding in Kings, but to get him in, we need to put him into a feeder school, which was Tudor House. And in the Southern in, Highlands. In the Southern Highlands. He tells the story of going up there with my mother and talking to the headmaster when, when Miles' brother was in, already in year six, and the headmaster was not really thinking it was a great idea, you know, Mr. Droger, you know, it's, it doesn't really make sense to pull him out of school and just have him here for a year. You know, maybe it might be better if, you know, he, he spends, you know, the, the last year down, down at his existing primary school and my father sort of, sort of looked around and he goes, um, well, I guess you don't want his four other brothers. And, um, and then as my father says that the, um, you know, the, the headmaster time sort of, you know, f- fumbled around with a few papers and then sort of, he said, I can see something opening up here. Welcome to Tudor House. <laughs> and so that's so as part of that, we all ended up, you know, so I ended up going in, in year four and uh, and that turned into nine years of boarding school. So a long uh, tour of duty, end up at King's. End up at King's, yeah. Where, where, obviously that's um, where you met Harry. Uh, Harry again, or you're in the same house. And was that love at first sight? Well, Harry, Harry and I were in different houses, but we oh, were, okay. in some ways, you know, he was a country boy from up north and uh, Bingra. And uh, we, um, yeah, we became good friends. And what was that environment like? An ambitious environment, being at King's, sporting, um, arts, did people talk about business markets? What kind of environment were you? Well, it was a, it was a, cadets, growing up a cadet school, and so sport and cadets. And, you know, the, the kids came from lots of, lots of different places, not, not necessarily for academic reasons. Could be a lot of discipline in that kind of environment. A lot of discipline. Good for futures yeah. trading. Yeah. yeah. So um, anyway, I, I look, I, you know, towards the end of that, I was definitely looking through to joining the uh, normal society, you know, to, to getting out and about, to joining my brothers who were at uni at that point and uh, getting on with life. So. so it's a funny environment, boarding school. It's an institution, but you're away from home. So it gives you a fair bit of independence, is it? And it gives you a bit of confidence to do stuff on your own as you go forward. Is that fair enough? Yeah, I think that would be, um, that would certainly be one of the, one of the, the key lessons, I guess, that came out for all, all of us kids that, that really when we left school, we were all independent, 
immediately. So we all started work. We all got our own, pla- uh, you know, rental places and just got on with life. Because that's not the normal path these days. Kids tend to stay at home or, uh, you know, with mum and dad for a fair bit longer. Life's a lot more expensive than it used to be. But you thought that was a good thing that you're forced yeah, to move that, on I for think, various reasons. Yeah, and I think the, the hand and mouth existence then was a lot more, uh, a lot probably easier to do than it is now. And so when you went to uni, you studied commerce. Were you good at maths? Uh, you got a great love of the arts, which we'll talk about in a minute. Good at maths, and it was always going to be a financial career. Is that how you were thinking at that stage, or was it? I just want to get to uni and have a good time. Yeah, I, I wasn't. I wasn't overly aware about the banking industry or the or the or the market side of things at all. It was really about okay. Well, this was a stepping stone. It could have been arts. It could have been arts degree. I mean, business sort of made more sense. I think with my interest in maths and in you know, just sort of generally commercial things. And so that was a really easy decision to make. And one of my older brothers was was already there. So it was the idea was to really was, I think I was probably looking at more about um, where we'd get a shared house in <laughs> Surrey Hills as opposed to, you know, okay, well, the two universities, it was either Sydney Uni or, or New South Wales Uni. Because it's quite interesting. You've got great love for art, especially Asian art, which you've indulged in over the years, Chinese art. And, of course, architecture, which you made some headlines. It's one of the few places we can find you publicly, fostering various projects, including bringing architects from around the world here, then funding um, scholarships for Indigenous uh, architects, going to university and so on. So those things obviously give you a lot of pleasure. Why, why, didn't, why didn't you study architecture? I think, well, as I said, I, I could have gone to art school or something like that, but I don't, actually, as an as a, as a art practitioner, I'd put myself more in the conceptual school. Um, so that's very vague. But, yeah, so I, I, I mean, we were brought up with, with art and, the, you know, creative thinking as being just a really uh, natural part of living. My mother ran a gallery. My auntie had uh, a gallery called Realities, which was sort of the leading avant-garde gallery in Melbourne during the 70s and brought up with beautiful things around us and, you know, Whiteley paintings or Olsen vases and all sorts of uh, interesting things. So it was just sort of, like, as an interest, it was just, it just existed. And in many ways, it's a, it's a bonding thing within, as the children, we all have a very similar interest. And, and so you've used it as an offset, as your interest that sits outside of business, but that keeps that fresh and exciting, I gather. So it has suited certainly uh, for running your own business uh, and managing uh, your time and you know really curating your own life as to what's important to you and how you allocate your time and and also uh, you know um, the benefits of of the financial benefits as to, as to um, uh, when you can take on other projects and so on. I mean, in the 90s, we, that warehouse I said that we mentioned that we, we moved into, we ended up buying that with, with a friend and we refurbished that. We, you know, um, on the architecture side, we, we bought a, a, a refurbished, a, a sort of dilapidated Harry Sider Lodge down in Threadbow. So we returned that with two of my brothers. So that was, an, that was a beautiful project to be involved with and then uh, worked with the MCA. I was head of the um, Young Patrons uh, from 99 2000 and then with some of the, uh, um, the um, Centre for Contemporary Asian Art in Sydney as well. So being involved in these things has been fantastic. Obviously working, working for myself has given me time to do that. And for instance, in the, in the, with the Asian uh, gallery experience, you know, we spent a lot of time going to China through that 2005 to 2010, and that was a brilliant insight into the rise of China, the Chinese, the end of the China century, 
and really, you know, through art, you know, you see the, the, the rise of consumerism or the, or, the, or the change from a collective to an individual. To it firsthand. Yes, is, you really get to, to see these things projected through, through an art form and, and, um, and also, you know, the change in cities and all that sort of stuff. So, um, and the benefits of working with, with uh, uh, the galleries and, and you know, artists have been wonderful. Okay, let's get creative in another sense. Markets where we are now, you've been able to pick the eyes out of the five minutes to midnight when you've changed careers or moved into another field. Where, where do you think we are at the moment? It's been a, a, it's been a long bull market. It's been interrupted this year and, and we've got interest rates very low. How do you read the next couple of years? Because your investments as an individual do span that kind of time frame. Well, in reality, the, the, the market is really where we were 10 years ago in terms of the, the Aussie market, the Aussie market. I mean, the makeup is obviously is, is quite different um, with very low interest rates. That means I think you can, you know, we're seeing the rise of what they call value, but in, in essence, the banks, is, I mean, those sort of things can, you know, can keep going for, for quite some time. I mean, there's no absolute, um, you know, breakout of inflation. I mean, we're seeing a little bit there on the commodities at the moment. Then, you know, we're, Backing on this on this run happening for you know to ma- to be maintained over the next over the next while, a couple of years. Yep. So more 70 percent returns. <laughs> you de- uh, you'll definitely be able to retire. I, I think say. yeah. Well, I think we we'll be, we'll, I think we'll be normalising. I think next year. Okay. So I know, like all good country folk, growing up in a country town, even though a snow village, but unusual in Australia, <laughs> maybe in Austria or somewhere, you would be a country music fan. And this year at the age of 86, Willie Nelson, one of the great country music performers and songwriters, recorded a song called Our Song. And he opens that song with the following words. In this time that I've been given to fill my life with living, I hope I've done the best that I can do. So here you are, 34 years into a working career. Have you done the best you can do? No, as I say, I mean, I like to um, certain, you know, I... I I'd put myself as, as trying hard, but certainly there's always more to do. Um, and I guess on a Willie Nelson note, I'd say I'm on the road again <laughs> and I'll be sticking with it. Very good. Well, Daniel, it's great been chatting to what who I consider a master of the market. Let's hope the next 30 years is outrageously successful as the first 34. Thanks a lot, Matthew. It's tough at the top, but some people just love climbing the mountain and trying to stay there for as long as possible. Even for me, a person who has known the guest for many years, I still haven't quite worked out why they've been able to pull off the remarkable. Each time I talk to them, though, I learn a little more, and today was no exception. If you like today's episode, subscribe through Apple or Spotify, or if you're a live wire reader, give this wire a like.